It's Bernie versus Bloomberg and Blago's busted out. It is February 19th, 2020. I'm Michael Coyne and you're listening to the newly returned Liberty Caller. All right. So we've got an awful lot to get to today. I've obviously been on an extended hiatus. Thanks for sticking with me. For those of you who did, if you're new, welcome. We're trying a new platform, a new distribution method. So pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts, you can now find Liberty Caller. So hopefully I can even increase my audience a little bit. We obviously are a big family here and we want the family to grow. All right, that's a little hyperbolic, but whatever. So... Let's start with what happened yesterday. So yesterday, President Trump released a flurry of presidential pardons. Now, presidential pardons are big news, kind of, for the day they happen. After that, everyone kind of forgets about them. Uh, There really has never been a presidential pardon that was non-controversial. There are some that the media are going to talk about more, some they're going to talk about less, but... There's one in particular that drew my attention, and that is, uh, since I was from Illinois, uh, former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Now, Blago, as we got used to calling him in Illinois, is, oh, what's a good word? He's a scumbag, okay? He's he's an absolute scumbag. Now, uh, Rod Blagojevich is, for those who don't recall, is the governor of Illinois who was accused of trying to sell the Senate seat that Barack Obama previously occupied um, after uh, Obama was elected president. Now, he kind of got caught in this. He got caught red-handed, which led to uh, the people of Illinois having Roland Burris for their senator, which eventually led to the election of Mark Kirk. Uh, Full disclosure, I worked for Mark Kirk for a time, uh, but... There, there's a whole lot going on there. But let's focus on the Blagojevich part. So why exactly would President Trump, a Republican, care about Rod Blagojevich, a Democrat? Well, it's worth remembering that Blagojevich and Trump know each other. Blagojevich actually appeared on Celebrity Apprentice uh, while his trial was going on before he was convicted of attempting to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat. Now, here's the rationale that Trump gave. And there's actually some credence to this. I'll give him this much, but here, here's what he had to say. He had to say that Blagojevich, he, has, he really can't visit his children uh, in the current situation of things. He, um, he's already served eight years uh, of time, which... It, Per Trump's statement, it is kind of a long time uh, to be away from from your kids and to to serve for what ultimately breaks down to well, was he really trying to sell the thing or was he just saying that there's like some way to leverage things? I, let me put it this way: for a guy who ran on drain the swamp, you know, you don't then turn around and pardon the swamp thing. And Blagojevich, of course, in this case, is the swamp thing. There's no way around it. Now, I, I am sympathetic that Blagojevich has children, and he hasn't actually he, – he it's a strange relationship, obviously. You're in prison. It's supposed to be a strange relationship. Rod Blagojevich did not exactly do a nice thing here. He was not a friend to the people. He was – he was a lousy governor. 
which has nothing to do, I mean, being a lousy public official doesn't necessarily merit a prison sentence, but he was a corrupt public official. He genuinely got caught on tape saying this thing was bleeping golden. That, that was his direct quote at the time. And he was referring to the Senate seat because the governor of Illinois gets to make, appoint a, uh, a successor. So, so it was corruption all around. He wanted to sell the Senate seat. And it was correct to put him away for a very long time. Don't you don't do the crime if you're if when you get caught, then you're going to say, "Oh, please, please have mercy on me." Now, all that being said, like I like I said at the top of this segment, there has never been a presidential pardon in history that wasn't controversial to somebody. So, presidents do have the authority and latitude to pardon pretty much whoever they want, for whatever reasons they want, and that's just how that goes. In the case of President Trump, he pardoned a whole bunch of people yesterday. It was a big flurry of pardons, and Blagojevich was one of them. He can use whatever metric he wants, but, I mean, I, I hate to say it, for, again, for a president who, at, at this point, I, I intend on voting for, I think he has actually earned support. Last time we spoke in 2018, I was coming around on Trump, but I was still very skeptical of the president because, I mean, he hadn't yet, he had only begun to prove his conservative bona fides. And in 2016, for those of you who can remember back 2016, 2017, I was still unconvinced. I was still utterly, utterly unconvinced that Donald Trump was going to govern like anything, like any kind of conservative. But he has governed like a conservative. He has done very well economically. He has done well in terms of tax and regulatory policy. He's cut an awful lot of red tape. He has cut federal spending, although the, the debt and the deficit still continue to grow. But, I mean, things are getting better. The economy is looking good. Em employment and unemployment are going in the right direction. So, I mean, Trump has earned my support. He's done an awful lot on the pro-life cause, which is wonderful. I... I'm there. I'm I'm at the point now where I think President Trump has earned my support. But but and I I can't emphasize this strongly enough. A lot of the people who are like me who didn't vote for you, who stayed home, who were unconvinced in 2016 are not going to be convinced to vote for you in 2020 if your flagship is going to be drain the swamp and ignore the fact that I'm going to pardon people like Rod Blagojevich. Like I said, he's the swamp thing. He's the swamp thing. You don't let him out. You don't put him back in public office, but you don't let him out. And, and like, like I said, at least he's not going back into public office. Maybe there's something to be said for mercy and compassion. I have some sympathy for that argument, obviously. But this... This was not a great look for President Trump. No, no pardon really is ever for a, a president, but this is something that people are pretty much going to forget about. They're going to overlook. It didn't win him any support other than he can say, hey, look, I pardoned a Democrat. It makes him look a little more bipartisan, which is probably the real reason why he did it, but it probably isn't going to cost him anything either as long as he doesn't do this sort of thing too much, which obviously it's a pardon. He's not going to do it a lot, probably. Um, but we'll have to keep an eye on that. Getting back to the fun stuff to talk about. So Mike Bloomberg has bought his way into the Democratic presidential race, and he's running 
at this point, it looks like he is the only competition for Bernie Sanders. Now, Joe Biden has fallen off the map. He went from lovable Uncle Joe to kind of weird Uncle Joe to creepy Uncle Joe to senile Uncle Joe to, okay, this guy can't be on the stage anymore. So I'm sure there were a fair number of Democrat operatives who realized that absent Joe Biden, the only person with a firm enough base of support to potentially win the nomination was, in fact, Bernie Sanders. Now, DNC staffers aren't stupid. They're political animals. They know, they know that a Bernie Sanders candidacy is not only very likely to lose in November of 2020, but it brands the Democratic Party for the next several election cycles. We're the guy who put up the communists. Now, there are a lot of people who are old enough to remember communism. And there are a lot of educated young people. I, I say young. Probably about, you know, my parents' age, you know, at, at least as gutting as low as, you know, 40s, maybe, maybe late 30s, who... They also know what communism is about. They aren't exactly in that millennial bracket where they think that, you know, real communism, real socialism has never been tried. They aren't stupid enough to believe that democratic socialist means anything different than communists because it doesn't. They are exactly the same thing. They, democratic socialism is just socialism with a rainbow painted over it. It's, it's the same difference. And DNC staffers were probably like, okay, we need to get someone in there who can reassure the big money Democrats that nothing crazy is going to happen and who at least doesn't make us look like idiots. If we're going to lose to Trump in November, let's at least lose with a little bit of dignity. And so Mike Bloomberg emerges. This is the first several primary states. I think he's going to be first um, on the ballot in Nevada, um, which is late, but it's, it's feasible. So, so okay, so Bloomberg gets in. Obviously, he has a lot of money to bankroll things, and he has been. You can't turn anything on without seeing a Mike Bloomberg ad. You can't go on social media. You can't go on Hulu. You can't go on any, um, any television network, really, without seeing a Mike Bloomberg ad. He is working very hard and doing very well at getting his message out there and defining himself for the public. Now... Of course, he's had an awful lot of tapes come out. This is probably all the result of the Sanders campaign releasing a bunch of opera research on Mike Bloomberg, things where they're trying to paint him as a racist for kind of saying common sense things that, you know, stop, question, and frisk was actually kind of a functional policy. It makes a little bit of sense to police these minority neighborhoods where the crimes are actually happening, you know, I mean, he said a lot of controversial things. Some of it's not great. Some of it sounds really bad. He's trying to walk back all of it. But again, he's doing a pretty good job of defining himself through these ad blitzes. Now, in the end of the day, more people are going to remember the ad blitzes than are going to remember the attack ads, probably because there will just, by quantity, be fewer attack ads, fewer negative media stories, fewer things that try to ill-define Mike Bloomberg than well-define Mike Bloomberg. And this is going to be Mike Bloomberg's pitch. This is going to be his pitch. Well, Donald Trump is a New York billionaire. I am a New York billionaire. You want 
someone who can go up against Trump who can actually match him dollar for dollar, and then some, Bloomberg is far wealthier than Trump, who can actually match him and turn around and say, yeah, and? Who can actually compete. Now, Bernie Sanders reminds me an awful lot of a a more successful version of Ron Paul from a few years ago. Now, we all remember that Ron Paul had this core of support that was unwavering. They were unwilling to let go. You know, you remember these slogans, Ron Paul or none at all. Now, the difference is obviously Bernie Sanders is crazy, whereas Ron Paul just kind of had these libertarian ideals. He wasn't really, you know, he wasn't nuts. No, let's put it that way. Ron Paul was not nuts. Ron Paul is not nuts. Bernie Sanders is kind of nuts. This guy honeymooned in the USSR for Pete's sake, okay? But, again, let's put that in context. So, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, he's like Ron Paul in the sense that that core support is not going anywhere. Now, Bernie Sanders is actually underperforming how well he performed in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. And that's an important thing to note. Now, he can stagger bloodied across the finish line of the Democratic primary. It's possible. But he's getting there on these small-dollar donors. Nobody with deep pockets thinks that Bernie Sanders is actually going to be good for the American economy. Nobody with deep pockets thinks that Bernie Sanders is going to be good for Social Security, Medicare, for anything, for pretty much any facet of the United States of America. But... He speaks to the ideals that these young people believe in, these millennials. Again, this core of support that is kind of on the fringes, that is pretty radical. Just look at where his ideas are coming from, his think tanks. The people who are funneling ideas to the Bernie Sanders campaign are all on the fringes, all on the way far left that the DNC has kind of sworn off because the DNC doesn't want to help Bernie Sanders. They will, ultimately, if he's the nominee, but they don't want this option. They don't want to do a Bernie Sanders candidacy. They know it would be a disaster. They know it would be a disaster. And the donors are going to stay away. The big dollar donors are going to stay away because they are legit afraid what happens if Bernie Sanders wins. So the DNC wants to stay away from Sanders because they're afraid. What if we nominate this guy? He's going to lose and he's going to make us look like idiots because he's too radical and it's going to usher in a red wave to hit uh, Washington in November, and we're starting from way behind for the next several election cycles. This is what the Democratic Party, the Democratic uh, apparatchik is thinking. Sorry, couldn't resist. So, so again, we've got Bloomberg in there, and Republicans had a lot of these same feelings about Ron Paul. There were a handful of conventions where Ron Paul was kind of the last man standing you know, when, when Romney was nominated, for example. Now, the difference being that Ron Paul didn't have the numbers. His little core of support that wasn't going away was much smaller than Bernie's core of support. You know, if Bernie's getting 25% or so in these polls, in these, uh, in these early states, and, you know, Ron Paul couldn't crack 10 or 12% when there was really only one other candidate with a shot on the ballot, it's obviously a, not an apples-to-apples comparison. But the enthusiasm is very similar. And it was the same thing with Romney. The party operatives didn't want 
they didn't want any part of a Ron Paul candidacy because people on the outside kind of perceived Ron Paul as crazy. Just like people outside of Bernie Sanders perceive him as crazy. Of course, this time it's because he is crazy. Bernie Sanders is nuts. So, so enter Mike Bloomberg, who nobody thinks is crazy. A lot of people really don't like him. I don't particularly like him, but he can appeal more to the middle. He doesn't scare off, you know, the Democrat big dollar donors. He doesn't scare off moderates and independents, at least not out of hand, because he used to be a Republican. He used to be an independent. You know, he's running as a Democrat on kind of sketchy grounds, but, you know, he's got that history behind him. You know, he, he clearly doesn't care about party very much, which in a general election is good for a Democratic primary. But remember, Bernie Sanders isn't technically a Democrat either. He's still an independent. He caucuses with the Democrats, but he's an independent senator for Vermont. There is not a Democratic senator. Well, I mean, scratch that. Bernie Sanders is an independent. Let's just leave it there. So we've got two people who fundamentally aren't really Democrats vying for the Democratic nomination, and Democratic political operatives are definitely going to be behind Bloomberg. Which leaves us in a difficult position, because right now it's looking like, unless Bloomberg pulls off miracle wins in several states moving forward, Bernie Sanders looks like he's going to rack up the delegates to get the Democratic nomination. Now, if that happens, if Bernie Sanders has, forget about a majority, but let's just say a plurality of the delegates going in, and then it plays out like 2016, well, yeah, but we're giving it all to Bloomberg because all these other people are dropped out, you know, Nobody really has a majority. Delegates are free on the, you know, second or third ballot or whatever it is. So here we go. It's Mike Bloomberg for the nomination. Sanders supporters are not just going to stay home, which they might do if anyone else is the nominee anyway, but Democrats are going to be actively PO'd. Sanders supporters are going to be just livid that twice the nomination was stolen from this octogenarian communist. So... I mean, Democrats are really in a pickle. They are not in good shape heading into November. And that leaves us here. That brings us here to this point where we're staring down the barrel of the next debate, which Bloomberg is going to be in. And it's going to be a good time. Uh, President Trump has already taken to calling Bloomberg mini Mike. He's actually a, a pretty short gentleman, uh, Mike Bloomberg. I, I don't really think it's fair to comment on height, but Trump doesn't play fair on things like that. He, he's, he's nasty. That's just what it is. Um, but again, with that, it's baked into the cake. It's baked into the cake. Nobody expects President Trump to suddenly be this civil, you know, wonderful, super nice candy and unicorns type guy. He, he's a jerk. We know that. You know, he's a jerk who hobnobs with Rod Blagojevich, another jerk. This is just a thing. It's baked into the cake. We know what we're voting for. We know what we're getting with Trump. Um, but yeah, it doesn't look, it just doesn't look great for Democrats going in. But it's kind of fun to watch them implode because they're, I mean, they're just going to get nowhere. It, it's a blast. It's an absolute blast. But yeah, it's going to come down to Bernie versus Bloomberg. If I had to peg it right now, 
I would say Bloomberg gets the nomination. Bloomberg gets the nomination by virtue of his money alone. Um, I think that he's going to kind of buy his way in there. He's going to get in there kind of by virtue of name ID. He's going to win a bunch of primary states. Super Tuesday is going to come around in a couple of weeks. And Bloomberg gets in there, again, kind of just writing name ID from buying all kinds of ads. And Sanders people are going to be really PO'd. They're going to be very upset. I understand why. And there you have it. Like half the Democratic Party, well, less than half, is going to just stay home. They're not going to care. Bloomberg's going to have lackluster support from the black community, a community that really needs to turn out in order to win. Remember, Donald Trump did not actually outperform any other Republican. He didn't outperform Romney or McCain. He didn't outperform W. It's just that Democrats weren't enthused about Hillary. You're going to see a massive enthusiasm gap again, um, no matter who the nominee is, whether it's Sanders or Bloomberg. And I really got a kick out of uh, Chris Matthews. He said... Um, he said just the other day that if Sanders gets the nomination, Trump stands to potentially win 49 states. I don't think that's realistic. He was exaggerating to make a point, but I really see where he's coming from because he's right. People aren't going to want to vote for Sanders. You're going to see a tremendous amount of people staying home. You're going to see a tremendous amount of people who are voting for Trump because they are literally scared of this guy. If Bloomberg is the nominee, Bloomberg's going to perform better against Trump. But you're going to see an enthusiasm gap. Because neither Bloomberg nor Trump can buy the presidency at that point. And if you call everything else a tie, and I don't, I actually think Trump is going to campaign better than Bloomberg. Bloomberg is not exactly an energetic, enthusiasm-inspiring candidate. Every, let's, but for the sake of argument, let's call everything else a tie. Money, call it a wash. Baseline of party support, call it a wash. You know... All else fails, tie goes to the incumbent, and you got to figure that Trump is going to ride Air Force One straight to re-election. So like I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, we're trying out some new toys. I'm trying out some new equipment to uh, get the, the podcast up and running. And at the outset, I was kind of upset because I had recorded um, our, our new final segment, and eh, the recording didn't save. The recording went away. Um, for those of you who can't tell, I'm kind of recording on the go. Like I said, we're trying out some new equipment that allows me to record this when I am a little bit more mobile uh, than I normally would be. But um, the funny thing is, uh, for those of you who, who aren't um, aware, well, I can't imagine many of you would be aware, but so one thing that I really like to do, I've found that it's, it's been tremendous for my, uh, my personal growth, my spiritual growth, is I like to attend midweek worship, midweek mass. Um, my, my local congregation here in DFW uh, offers, offers that. Um, I, am, I am an Anglican. I, after a fair history um, with various denominations of the Lutheran tradition, the Lutheran persuasion, um, I ultimately moved over here um, to the Anglican Communion, and I, I'm a member of the Anglican Church in North America. As it happens, uh, so is our Vice President, Mike Pence. Uh, so if, if you don't know what the Anglican Church in North America is all about, you might want to check it out. Um, but as it happens, 
our priest, uh, my priest, preached his sermon today on the virtues of St. Polycarp. Um, now, for those who, who don't know their church history, don't worry, I'm not going to quiz you today, uh, but Polycarp was, Polycarp was martyred uh, in the days of the early church um, for refusing to disavow Christ, for refusing to disavow his Christian faith. Um, and it, his final words uh, were, I, I've been a servant of, I've been a servant of the Lord for 86 years. How can I, in my final moments here, blaspheme my King and my Savior? And it, it tied in remarkably well to the last thing I wanted to talk to you all about today. Um, so, I, I'm going to start doing something new. My last segment of each podcast is going to be a little more faith-oriented, a little more focused on um, talking about current events and matters that face uh, the church, that face religion. Um, so, I mean, for those of you who aren't interested in that, obviously you can, you can turn the podcast off now, you can skip, but I hope you don't. I hope you stick around, because it's very pertinent to, uh, to the issues of the day, and this particular message about St. Polycarp is particularly pertinent to what I was already talking about. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that I had bounced around to a few different uh, Lutheran denominations, one of which was the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA. Um, the ELCA, much like the Episcopal Church um, and even the, uh, the Methodists right now, the Methodists are going through their own version of this, uh, underwent some, some difficulties. There, there was a split um, which resulted in the formation of uh, what's now called the North American Lutheran Church. And basically the split uh, was along fault lines. Those who believe um, that the scriptures are, authorita are authoritative for the church and those who don't believe that, those who believe that the social gospel kind of takes precedence and who basically believe that the truth of scripture is negotiable. And when I was in ELCA pews, I certainly listened to my fair share of sermons that all seemed to begin with phrases like, I don't like today's gospel reading. I don't like this particular scripture passage. I don't like to preach on this passage. You know, let's talk about this instead. And the gist of it was pretty much always, you know, to sweep the message under the rug or to try to distort it to, to get around to some sort of feel-good, you know, love your neighbor type message and completely bypassing what was actually in the lectionary for that day. And, and like I said, the Episcopal Church was going through this that ultimately resulted in my becoming an Anglican. I saw the Episcopal Church leveling lawsuit after lawsuit uh, at uh, dioceses and congregations, uh, parishes that, that wanted to leave uh, because they wanted to be faithful to Scripture. And I, I, it caught my attention. I ultimately decided that my place was with the uh, the people who were getting their rear ends kicked. And, I, and of course, here I am today as an Anglican. But that gets aside from the point. I said this was about current events, and it is. So the Church of England recently put forward a very impressive uh, statement uh, reaffirming biblical sexuality, biblical uh, definitions of marriage, and, and reminding people that a, a civil union, whether it's same-sex or opposite-sex, is not a marriage. And 
that the Church of England's official position remains that a marriage is a union between one man and one woman. Now, it was very strong. It was very loving. It said, you know, everyone's welcome here. We're the, you know, we're going to treat you pastorally, but this is our position. And, you know, to be a faithful servant of Christ means to accept the Bible as written. Now, within about mm, five minutes of releasing that statement, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, basically went on an apology tour. And, you know, he and the other bishops of the Church of England started apologizing for all the harm that statement caused, all the pain it caused. And I'm... And those of us who believe in the Bible, those of us who are members of, you know, movements who broke away from more liberal churches in order to remain faithful to the gospel, said, well, this is why. This is why we broke away. Reading your Bible is not, let's pick the parts that we like and ignore the parts that are inconvenient based on the social mores of the moment. What does 1 John say? What does 1 John say? It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning of John. That's the first chapter of the book of John, the Gospel of John. Now, the Word it's talking about is Jesus Christ. But we as Christians also recognize that the Word is the Bible, the Word of God. So when we Christians study our Bible, we are doing a sacred thing, an almost sacramental thing. We are, in some sense, attempting to touch the face of God. So how can you call yourself a Christian in one moment and then deny the truth of God's very face in the next? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember, folks, the, the scriptures weren't decided upon. They weren't, they weren't authored and then, oh, the church made a, a determination, yeah, these are okay. They were received. There was very, really very little debate at the Council of Nicaea over what should constitute the New Testament. It was pretty obvious. We understand as Christians that God's Word is authoritative. Holy Scripture is authoritative. If God's Word says one thing, you cannot then turn around and redefine it or change it and do something else. A sin is a sin, no matter who does it or says it. And this is not unique to Protestants or the Anglican Communion. This is pretty, this is common to all Christians right now are undergoing their own struggles with liberal theology. Uh, even, even our friends over in the Roman Catholic Church are dealing with this. Uh, Pope Francis recently, to his credit, although I'm sure it was much at the urging of Pope Emeritus Benedict, uh, put out a, uh, a statement kind of putting to bed some of the more controversial and difficult elements of the Amazon Synod um, which, for those who don't know, um, 
the Amazon Synod was a document, or uh, a group, rather, pushed by uh, liberal theologians in, in Germany and Latin America, um, Brazil, and so forth, that basically said, well, the Catholic Church should relax its rules on, on certain things, um, particularly with regards to women, clergy, and whatnot. And, and don't, don't make any, understand, any misunderstanding here. Uh, Pope Francis has signaled for a long time that he is right there with Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, on these lefty moves for the church. He is right there saying, you know, he's right there with he'd love to give gay marriage the okay. He just doesn't have the ability to do so right now. He would love to, you know, move Rome in the same direction that uh, other, other Christian denominations have, have begun moving. Um, remember, uh, Pope Francis is a, a Jesuit, and the Jesuits have long been understood as a bastion of liberal theology within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so, I mean, Catholics are going through it too. Liberal theology kind of rots churches from the inside out because it's much easier to be a, a liberal theologian than it is to be a polycarp. It's much easier to conform yourself to the whims of the day, to redefine your faith, redefine what it means to be Christian, than it is to say, how can I possibly deny my savior, my king? Now you may have listened this far and you're thinking, well, why is he giving a sermon? What, what is the point of you know, this, I, I tuned in for, for news and commentary. Well, you're still getting news and commentary because my point is this. Religious people need to be free to practice their faith. People think that these denominations are splitting over gay marriage, and gay marriage isn't it. Gay marriage was the hair trigger. Gay marriage was the straw that broke the camel's back. It's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. If scripture is authoritative for you, you're a Christian. If you deny the word, you deny Christ. How can you call yourself a Christian? You can dress it up in vestments and crosses and candles and whatever you want, but you're not a Christian. You're something else. You're something else. And that's the point. That's the, the part that we need to understand, both as Christians and simply as Americans. That words matter. Definitions matter. Being a Christian is not a negotiable part of someone's identity. Just like being ex-gay, formerly gay living that lifestyle and then turning around and rejecting it in favor of living for Christ is not a negotiable part of someone's identity. Remember that remember that the entire LGBTQPXYZ, I don't know what all letters there are, they add a new one each day, it's hard to keep track. Remember that that entire movement is you get to define who you are. You are who you say you are. Well, I identify as a Christian. 
I identify as a Bible believer. I need to be free to do so. I'm not saying that you can't live as you choose, but I have every right to live and believe and speak and preach as I choose. And I will not morph my identity in Christ to suit your social whims. No one should ever be asked to change who they are or what they believe to suit any sociocultural movement. I'm willing to make that a blanket statement. Freedom of religion is enshrined in our First Amendment to the Constitution. And some of you are saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. England isn't under the First Amendment. You're absolutely right. We're talking about the Church of England, but we're not just talking about the Church of England. We're talking about this action by the Church of England. We're talking about the Church of Rome. We're talking about Roman Catholicism. We're talking about Protestantism, Evangelicalism. We're talking about the state of the Church writ large, the global Church, the global communion of confessing Christians, Orthodox Christians, if you will. Not Orthodox in the capital O sense, Orthodox in the sense that we believe in Scripture. What I ask of you as a listener, if you're not a Christian, okay, fine, you're not a Christian. But what I ask of you today is to stand up for the rights of the faithful. To stand up and say that we will not force any religious person to redefine their beliefs based on social whims, and we will outright call out the people who attempt to change it. We will outright call out and decry those who attempt to shame Bible-believing Christians for what they believe in. That's my closing thought today. Thank you very much for listening to the newly rebooted Liberty Caller. I hope you all have a great rest of your week, and I look forward to seeing you again real soon. Hopefully you're subscribing. Uh, If you aren't already, make sure you subscribe to Liberty Caller wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. God bless you all. God bless the United States of America.